God damn it. Each of us is alone, the fucking universe. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time and also sprinkles in some interviews and trivia every now and then because sometimes you just can't get enough. I'm an army of one again today, so let's soldier through this together. Today's mission is Pai oh Mai, the fifth episode of season four, and we're approaching the precipice. This episode is just one episode past the halfway mark of the series total of 86 episodes. In other words, we're on the wrong side of things, approaching the end. But it's not all downhill from here, not by a long shot. It's all a big nothing. What makes you think you're so special? It's not all a big nothing. There are a whole lot of somethings that have happened and will continue to unfold in Sopranos' signature cadence and fashion. So let's get into it. This episode was written by Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess and directed by Henry Bronstein. This is the fourth and final episode he is credited as a director for. It originally aired on October 13th, 2002. HBO synopsis. Checking out Ralph's promising new filly at the track, Tony displays a flair for horse racing strategy and discovers an unexpected affinity for the stable life. Adriana finds her rock club being used as a place of business for Chris and his pals. Meanwhile, a court artist incurs the wrath of Uncle Junior and Janice feeds Bobby in his hour of need. This episode establishes on the crazy horse. This signals that it will be somewhat of an aid episode. Inside, we hear a singer shouting, you are what you are, and it's all about you. Cut to aid. Nice touch. She's about to eat a french fry, but Tony's entrance distracts her. Last episode, Silvio and Christopher were eating french fries. A lot of fries. As she walks across the room to greet Tony and Silvio, note the eye on the wall. The watchful, ominous eye. Tony takes a Glenn Levitt, but just a seltzer for Silvio. This always makes me think about the drink choices people make and what it says about the person. Like, is it an embedded personality characteristic? Or is it simply a decision made in the moment and nothing else? Standalone. The oblique, shout out to Jackie Jr., the oblique angles of Adriana and Tony while she's imagining him plan her demise is a great touch. Everything about her will be off kilter from here on out. So, more guys come in. First Christopher, then Furio. They've got a guy with them, Giovanni. We're seeing a pattern here. Remember back to when Christopher first gifted or granted the crazy horse over to Adriana? She was going to run it, but there were going to be silent partners. The full extent of what that meant wasn't really clear then, but here we see it manifesting. AIDS Club is going to be one of the spots where the Soprano family conducts its business. So back to Giovanni. He's caught up. What's going on? In a brazen move by AID, and as a viewer surrogate for us, she decides to follow them into the back alley. This feels tense. There are elements of a horror movie here. The suspense, the tension, the unknown. Is she working for the feds? Or is she innocently making sure Chris is okay? It's very H.P. Lovecraft. The seesaw of ambiguity that is the show now washes over Adriana's character, and we, the viewer, are in this constant state of unpacking, deciphering, questioning. This is a byproduct of what happens when people don't just come clean, right? What we're seeing are symptoms of what happens when a lie begins to grow and take form. So, she looks through the window and sees Chris and Syl restraining Giovanni while Furio delivers a beating. Tony is nowhere in sight. Chess. He's always playing it. Little things, little moments like this make it so evident. It looks like Furio's clubbing Giovanni across the face with the Yellow Pages. Last episode, when Johnny Sack was at the job site office talking to Tony about Donnie Kay, he had an open Yellow Pages laid out in front of him. 
This made me wonder where in the chronology of time we are now that Yellow Pages have become relics of the past. There was a transition period where they were useful door jams, paperweights, booster seats, and if you're in this thing of theirs, weapons, apparently. Yellow Pages, it turns out, was actually serendipitous. The first regular telephone directory printer ran out of white paper, so they used yellow instead. It's as arbitrary as that. San Francisco was the first city to limit yellow page distribution in 2013 after a study revealed that 1.6 million yellow pages were distributed in the greater San Francisco area and collectively produced 3,600 tons of waste, 1 million in disposal costs, and over 6,000 metric tons of CO2 emissions. Extrapolate those data points across other major cities, and that's enough to put you in a therapist's chair. How are you feeling now? What happened in San Francisco started the official global decline of Yellow Pages as we know them. And as of this year, January 1st, 2019, all global Yellow Page production became fully digitized. Fucking internet. Okay, cut to Livia's house exterior. Now, of course, Janice's house. The geometry of this house is worth mentioning. There's another oblique angle. There's also a strange angular modernity to the house, to the structure, to the architecture, given the neighborhood it's placed in and the surrounding houses it's next to. So Janice is in the kitchen, looking out the window through binoculars. We've seen this before. That putrid, rotten, soprano gene, as Tony would say. Recall Livia in an earlier season, similarly peering out the window, spying on the activities of a neighbor, at a 45-degree angle, the clandestine behavior being emphasized by the angles. Perhaps this was a contributing factor to the establishing shot of Livia's house from an offset angle. A note on body language. Janice's wind-up technique for using the binoculars was informed. She's a pro at work. If you were to set it to music, there's almost a waltz-like quality to it. She sees Mikey Palmisi's widow, Jojo, who's played by actor Michelle Santopietro, eagerly trotting over to Bobby's. We haven't seen that much sprig in her steps since kicking Mikey out of the house for his morning jog, his last morning jog. We see that Syl and Chris are also there, but I don't recall ever seeing them around those parts. Not since Richie was killed, at least. And that was just Chris. Cut to Cosette in a basket while Aid's getting her hair done. These non-sequitur cuts to Cosette have officially become a thing. The feds call. They want aid to drive up to A&B Bakery, Route 10, East Hanover. The actual location was at the intersection of East Ridgewood Avenue and South Broad Street. Aid doesn't want to drive, quote, all the way up there. Now, sitting here in Los Angeles, I looked at Google Maps, and is it really that far away? Traffic, I get it, but still. Also, I've always wanted to know the answer to this question, but have never cared enough to look it up. But now's as good a time as any. Adriana's got foil in her hair. And it made me wonder, why do women have foil in their hair when getting it done sometimes? She says she's getting lights in a wax. It turns out the foil creates a greenhouse effect that effectively cooks the color dye into the hair. Once inside, it saturates throughout the hair strand. I know. Fucking Vidal Sassoon over here. With Vidal Sassoon. Nice little moment with Danielle. She scares Adriana by effectively lying, saying that there's a unit watching the beauty shop. We get a character reveal here. She's letting her guard down a bit. She's having fun with this for the first time, it seems. Now that it's out in the open. Contrast this with Adriana, who's currently in the midst of living a lie, With Danielle here, the truth has become liberating. Cut to Janice at Bobby's door. She walks in on him and Jojo. Jojo made chicken marsala. Janice doesn't look impressed. 
The marsala in chicken marsala, of course, comes from marsala wine, which originates from marsala in Sicily. Janice tells Bobby, the president says we have to keep going. This is, of course, a reference to George W. Bush and 9-11, quite possibly from his September 20th speech to a joint session of Congress, where moving forward was a theme and the word together was said eight times. Janice starts doing Bobby's dishes on account that Rigoberta was put on this earth to destroy Teflon, which made me ask, can Teflon be destroyed? Turns out anyone can destroy it, not just Rigoberta, if they expose it to heat greater than 570 degrees. But generally, Teflon pans, once considered a health risk, are now considered safe. Me, personally, I'm a big fan of seasoned cast iron skillets. Although Teflon Dawn sounds a heck of a lot better than cast iron Dawn. Teflon Dawn, of course, is a common moniker used to describe John Gotti, boss of the Gambino crime family. The term was coined because none of the charges against him ever stuck. Certainly one of the great moments in media moniker creation. Janice takes a dig at JoJo's son, Michael, taking Ritalin, partially to scare Bobby away from ever sending his kids there, but also to annoy her to the point of leaving so she can have him all to herself. Ritalin is prescribed to treat ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, something none of you have if you've been listening to this podcast. A recent Harvard study actually found that early detection and treatment with methylphenidate, or the brand name Ritalin, is actually beneficial over the long term, and that any side effects were, quote, non-serious adverse effects. Alas, Jojo leaves after a brief stare-down with Janice, and that's all it took, was a look. Janice has that much heft, that much presence. What happened to that wonderful personality and demeanor? her therapist spoke of a few episodes back. She takes ZD out of the freezer. It's Karen's ZD. She says she didn't know, but she sure pounced on the chance to comfort. Immediately before she kicked closed the dishwasher, she gave Bobby an askance glance, followed by a sigh, as if she wanted his attention, or she was bothered by the fact that she wasn't getting his attention yet. Haven't I done enough? She's already kind of thinking. The ZD here, I'm saying, was weaponized by Janice to further connect to Bobby. Let's see how it unfolds. Cut to aid up in East Hanover. Agent San Severino is introduced into the mix. She's played by actor Karen Young, who I first remember from Jaws The Revenge, also starring Michael Caine. She was the mother of the little girl that almost got attacked by a shark while on a banana boat. I really needed to say this so that I could incorporate a late summer reference to the famed NBA banana boat featuring LeBron James, Chris Paul, Carmelo Anthony, and I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, Dwayne Wade. Then wait a second. Maybe Gab Union was on there and not Carmelo. I, I, I forget, but you get the idea. San Severino mentions a Chip Soto. Never heard of him before, but let's leave that on the table. San Severino asks where Pussy is. She and Agent Harris are triangulating Adriana here, trying to get her to become a cooperating asset. Pussy's, of course, mentioned as someone that Tony, too, once loved, like Christopher. Aid is confident that he's in witness protection, but here her innocence and naivete are forever shattered in an instant. We knew all along, but she finally caught up to us, and it's devastating to see her connect the dots. Last point of note here, Danielle is out of the picture. She shows herself out, actually, which I loved. Kind of poetic in a sense. Very Western. She leaves the show on her own terms, in a show where that is seldom the case for a character. Cut to Carm and Tony in the kitchen. Carm got a tip on a new medical stock. She thinks they should put 10K in it. We don't have that kind of money on hand right now. Things are tight. Don't you read the papers, the economy? 
It sounded like a wonderful opportunity. What are you going to do, huh? Note the wide frame. Tony's in it. Then he's out of it. She's alone. The walls are closing in on her on either side. It's a very meaningful frame. And it's a carryover from the last episode, The Weight. The weight of Tony in frame and then out. Note the shadow he casts when he's in the shot versus when he's not. The room is lit differently. The palette of the room is different. Ever since Carmela's session with Krakauer and then with her priest, she's trying to find positive use cases for the family money. Traditional use cases. Socially normative use cases. She wants less awkward lunches with pals. To not feel like crosshairs are on her, like they were during the Christopher episode at Father Intentola's luncheon that singled her out. Okay. So Tony almost got shaken down for 10K. Cut to Tony heading out to his cash stash in the backyard. Past episodes, past storylines coming back to shine a light on this episode. The cash is stored in a Rubbermaid trash can. I can't help but find that amusing. The degree of regularness of life is dialed way up here. We've all got our Rubbermaid equivalent stash spots with varying contents. Cut to the Waldorf Astoria for horses over here. Ralphie says, No, Tom, watch out for the ghost. But. Which is interesting. Throughout the years, there's been a lot of talk about the symbolism of the goat in the show. Now, as always, nobody knows anything, including me. But goats are mentioned many times in the Bible. First, in the Old Testament where they're considered clean animals and were regularly slaughtered to honor visiting house guests. On Yom Kippur, two goats would be selected, where one was sacrificed and the other was sent into the wild, along with all the sins of the family or community that released it. Hence the term scapegoat. Now, interestingly, there's a dichotomy between the Old Testament view of goats and the New Testament view. Christians generally associate goats with Satan. In fact, the devil is commonly depicted as goat-like in medieval art, probably the most notable being depictions of what's known as bafflement. Now, let's course correct here for a second. We're talking about a goat at a horse stable who was real-life friends with Paiomai and was part of the package of having her on the show in the first place to keep her company because, I learned, Horses like to have a companion around. But since this goat is associated in a scene with Ralph, Ralph points him out, and Ralph has devilish tendencies, the nexus is there. So without saying more, it's worth keeping that goat in the back of your mind. Sill says, my Nina Lento cooked goat. There's a Netflix cooking series waiting to happen. Okay. So Ginsburg is in the entourage. Tony's accountant. He balks when asked if Tony ever thought about owning a horse. Good accountant. We should all be so lucky if our accountants are that attentive when similar scenarios arise in our day-to-days. Ralph is concerned about bucked shins, which refers to the painful result of overworking a young horse that hasn't fully developed yet and could potentially put them out of commission if not prevented. Ralph then says the horse is going to be a bottle of Lepage if she doesn't win her race. Lepage is a Canadian glue company whose core ingredient, like many other types of glue, is horse hoof. Some sick fuck, that Ralph. Great Hesh moment. Actually, great series of Hesh moments. He owns Ralph by saying if you want a sure thing, buy bonds. Notice the subtle pun here. Glues are known for bonding things together. Also note the earlier reference to Teflon, or the opposite of bonding together. Next, Ralph says, This chooch, he sells me a horse, the next week it starts losing. Chooch comes from Italian chuccio, which means idiot or jackass in southern Italy. This is interesting. The horse starts losing on Ralph's watch. It's out of the money, like an expiring Snapchat option. 
or fourth place in the horse racing world. Ralph is bad luck, at least according to Chinese numerology, where the number four is not something that you want to be associated with. Tell tale Ralph moment. And tell that midget not to be shy with the whip. Note the cut to Tony's face, followed by Hesh's grand finale. If only his mother had taken that advice. Young Ralph at the kitchen table with his mother could be great television. Okay, Janice comes to visit Uncle June. Janice fucking brings JoJo's chicken marsala over to Junior's. She repeats JoJo's instructions right back to Murph. She's doling out Bobby's food so she can increase her value. This is kind of like LeBron offering up jersey numbers to recruit talent and solidify power. Only without the part where Nike calls up and demands the ZD stay in the freezer. Junior's waiting like patience on a monument for Bobby to get over his wife. He's had it with Murph. Personally, I can't help but feel for Murph. How can you not be a fan of Murph? Murph, of course, is played by character actor Italo Valentino Bisoglio. He was John Travolta's dad in Saturday Night Live, for Christ's sakes. By the way, Val's going strong at 93. The camera locks on Junior reaching for change. The sound design is such that you even hear the clanging of the coins. It's Murph's jacket. Murph originally wanted to get it, but Junior told him to bring the car around, that he'd get the jacket after going upstairs and looking for some change. But he takes the change out of Murph's jacket. Super subtle, but so telling. This moment felt different. Either an homage, or red herring, or something. If you have any insights or thoughts, let me know. Next, Janice helped Bobby go through Karen's things for St. Vincent de Paul. This is sort of like Goodwill, in the name of Vincent de Paul, a French Catholic priest who devoted his life to serving the poor and disenfranchised. There's a high school in Wayne, New Jersey, that bears his name. Of course, there's also DePaul University in Chicago, alma mater of NBA players Rod Strickland, Wilson Chandler, and some others. While listening to Janice Jr. still rummaging through Murph's jacket, he's on a quest. This is a great tacit character reveal. Junior's always scavenging, and he's been doing it since the beginning. He's disappointed because Bobby was supposed to be taking care of something for him. God damn it. Each of us is alone in the fucking universe. Quintessential Junior statement, puts his hat on, trots out of the frame. And we're left with Janice's introspective gaze. For a second, she kind of becomes Parvati from Seattle. Junior's thought was deep and metaphysical. I think it's a malaprop from Somerset Mom's The Moon and Sixpence, where he writes, Each of us is alone in the world. The book, I was happy to learn, was inspired by the life of painter Paul Gauguin. And the premise was very Christophery. A guy abandons his wife and kids to pursue his desire to become an artist. Kind of like the movie City Island, but without the family abandonment part. But it's very uncharacteristic of Junior to botch a quote based on what we know about him to this point. So I'll prefer to think he knew the quote, but added his own exclamation point to it. In other words, he took Somerset Mom's words and made them better. Cut to Tony laying down cash at the track. There's a cool story behind this scene, and it's in my conversation with Stuart Zully, who played Ginsburg. So look out for that down the line. I like the touch of having your accountant at the racetrack. There's something comforting about it, like he's a safeguard or something. Tony says the word shadrul, which is another word for idiot. Ginsburg says if it makes your wife happy, go with God. And I think that last part is a reference to the Latin expression vade adeum, which means the same thing. For some reason, that expression takes me back to high school detention or jug, as it was called at my school. Next up, we get the opposite of a woke Tony. I'm supposed to make the money. She takes care of the house. That's the way it should be. Camilla's a smart woman. We start winning in the market. It's going to be until this and Coca-Cola that. Never end. Ginsburg goes on to say that the life insurance trust is a big red flag. Because it's irrevocable. Divorce is mentioned. Hold on to that. 
Tony seemingly has a mini panic attack, similar to the one he had with Gloria at the zoo. Maybe he was thinking about his mother and what Johnny Boy left her in the end. But in general, why would someone want to tie up assets irrevocably? There's a couple of reasons that still make them viable for some people. First, the assets aren't taxed at death, which, in Tony's case, could be significant. And second, there's greater privacy, no public record, also valuable to Tony in his own unique situation. And now, a special word on Tony's threads. The suit, the pocket square, one of the highest instances of a perfectly executed look. A beautiful throwback to a bygone era of the NBA when players would enter the arena looking like that during the playoffs. Little shout-out to Allen Iverson for bucking that trend. We're talking about practice, man. I mean, how silly is that, man? We're talking about practice. What are we talking about? We're talking about practice, man. Ginsburg advises not to get into irrevocable trusts. Rather, look into life insurance trusts, something a little more flexible. Of course, here, the trade-off that comes with the power to revoke is that death creates a taxable event for the beneficiaries. And importantly, it's not protected from creditors. Okay, enough estate planning 101. The race starts. We see binoculars again. This time, Ginsburg's using them. Silvio, too. They're watching the track the way we watch the show. It's a nod to us, in other words. Note that Tony's cheering very similar to the way he was cheering for AJ a few seasons ago. Or was it Meadow? Either way, it's a nice throwback to something we've seen before. A gentler, bucolic Tony in the middle of having found a moment to fully escape the confines of his own mind. Pi wins. We learn that Ralph bet 5K at an 8-1. to I think that means he just cleared 40,000, give or take whoever's owed a cut. We overhear that Piamaya is owned by Inez, Ralph's housekeeper. But wait, I thought Ralph bought her. This always threw me a little. Was Inez a paper owner to protect him from creditors? In other words, was there some strategy at play here? Ralph takes a seat. He seems to be holding his heart. It almost feels like he's relieved, like he owed someone money or had an expense to cover. And now, thanks to this race... He's out of the woods. Moments later, we're introduced to the jockey, who says, I asked, and she was there. He's seemingly giving all the credit to the horse, which got me asking the question, how crucial is the jockey to the horse's performance? And the coolest analogy I found was that a horse race is a symphony in motion, and the jockey is the conductor of that orchestra. With great horses, apparently, it's 75% horse and 25% jockey. The interesting story point of this episode comes to light. Ralph insists on giving Tony a taste. Fluke, Escala, whatever the fuck. I'm giving you your taste. Oh, your money's no good. Note the great little pun on species of fish. Interestingly, Escolar is considered toxic. And many common fish we think we're eating at sushi or seafood restaurants were actually just mislabeled Escolar before major government crackdowns. So, Ralph gives Tony his taste, and he's kind of playing chess here. He's ingratiating himself to Tony in a low-hanging fruit opportunity moment. I always wondered if he hadn't brought it up, would Tony have asked? Or maybe would he have sent a third party, a proxy, to come collect on his behalf? Cut to Tony peeling off some of that taste for Carmela's allowance. And he's ready to sign some docs. Which means, get your popcorn ready for another regularness-of-life kitchen encounter between Carmela and Tony. Carm is so happy, she calls him... Anthony Soprano, that is wonderful. But, we see, there's one page he won't sign. The coordination of him turning his back to her, opening the fridge, and saying he won't sign the last page is too good. It's like a Juan Martin Del Potro cross-court forehand winner. 
He has knocked the fluff off that one. There's better ones, he says. In vitro something. The writers are having too much fun. Of course, this is referring to inter vivos. Well, like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Excuse me? It's the government, come. You gotta be flexible. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Come on, come, be fair. I gave you two out of three. You gave me? He follows what he thought was a light moment with the zinger, I gave you two out of three. And the point worth noting here is Carmela's restraint. It was more powerful than any words could be. In that shining moment of self-awareness, she reclaimed control of the situation. Cut to aid. Someone who very much is not in control of the situation. The exact opposite of Carmela. She's reading a TV guide, which, by the way, is still going strong, even though its valuation has taken a predictable hit from its glory years. Also, I can't help but see some kind of messaging here. The Sopranos, of course, being the definition of appointment television. One of a handful of shows that was TV Guide proof or TV Guide transcendent. Anyway, Aid hears Chris. She pretends to be asleep sick. What are you doing in bed? We got dinner with Tony and Carmella tonight. Oh, I can't go. I'm sick. What do you mean? I don't know. I got chills and a fever. I think I'm getting the flu. I shouldn't go up there. Come on, get dressed. A couple of drinks, it'll kill the germs. You forget all about it. You better go without me. But you have to go. This is the inner sanctum here. I'm not just a relative anymore. Christopher acquiesces a little too fast in my mind. Ends the scene with the line, nothing ever goes my way. Shoots up. The sad thing here, of course, is he doesn't know the half of it. Cut to Bobby's house. Why don't your kids tell Daddy what we saw on the way home from school today? She's already assuming the domestic role. The replacement role. The simple omission of the word your implies that they are a collective body, a family. Not to beat a dead horse in an episode that starts at the crazy horse and stars a horse, but Janice is playing chess. Bobby invites her to stay. Corner three for Janice. She tells him about Junior. We learn what Bobby was supposed to do. Something about union business. There's an election coming up. Bobby's waffling between guilt and anger. Junior's been so good to me, and I'm letting him down. Uh, Fuck him. He only thinks of himself as a selfish old fuck. This was great to see. So far, we've rarely gotten to see the mobbed-up Bobby manifest itself. Here, we're getting a sampling of it. An antipast. Janice says her uncle is a patient man. Waiting like patience on a monument. More angling in an episode chock full of maneuvering and posturing. Bobby says, I don't care if I live or die. Janice follows up with, we lose that luxury when we have children, which is very therapy, self-help sounding. More flakes of Parvati from Seattle rearing its head. She holds his hand. They have a moment. With a little love and some tenderness. We'll walk upon the water. We'll rise above the mess. With a little peace and some harmony. Bobby, like Jay-Z here, has an appetite for destruction and scrapes the plate. Which signifies Janice hitting a game winner and turning her back to the basket before the shot even touches the net. Cut to Tony and Brian at the stables. So show me one of those trusts, delivered ones. Okay, I can see where you'd want more mutability, Tom. Mutability mean money? Because yeah, that's what I want. (laughs) Mutability, of course, means changeable. Options. And optionality, as we've discussed many times, is a good thing. And if you're interested in the subject of optionality... Check out a book called Anti-Fragile. So when did Tony become the horse whisperer? Knowing about racing strategy and whatnot. Is it a trait inherent to leadership? Turns out it has more to do with people in tune with psychology. And if that is a connection, why Payomai exists in the show in the first place, I think it's a wonderful touch. Also, note the number 
on Pi's second race. Three. Cousin Brian, we learn, bet to show, which is a type of bet that is considered the easiest horse bet one can make, and as such, pays out the least. That explains his dismay. Ralphie pays Tony again. But note the amount this time. Tony keeps his hand out. So super awkward. But such a power play. A moment ago, I said Ralph was trying to ingratiate himself to Tony. Here, it's as if Tony knows that. And by leaving his hand out, he's letting him know that he'll gladly squeeze him for everything he's got, but that nothing Ralph does or nothing he offers will create any degree of homeostasis between the two of them. Tony returns home, kitchen's full of flowers, and no, they're not from Furio. He takes out leftovers, cracks a beer. Carmela's giving him the silent treatment, probably one of the most relatable aspects of interpersonal relationships with significant others. See the flowers got here. Which you like better, the lilies or the roses? You kind of get the suspicion that she likes the smell of an irrevocable trust better. But Tony's not done yet. He offers up cash for the stock. But we learn they missed it. It split. But so what if it split? Is it bad to buy stock after it splits? Not necessarily. It's generally viewed as a positive event for a company. And making shares more accessible to the retail public is supposed to, in theory, drive demand for the stock. Technically speaking, if that company was a long-term winner, the stock split shouldn't have mattered. I always felt like Carm should have taken Tony up on this offer, or at least put the funds in the brokerage account to go to work on another investment down the line. But note Carmela's calm and poise ever since being told she got two out of three. She's playing a long game of her own. Then we get the first of two great moments with Tony by himself. The first here is Tony sitting in the moon glow at the kitchen table enjoying a late night snack. A great palate cleanse that we get to share with him. Cut to Bobby. It's the same night. Different circumstances, though. Pulling up at a place called Dorley's Lounge. The exterior is currently a place in Newark called Suisa Bakery and Coffee Shop. Bobby sits down to a guy at the bar, Teddy Generetti. Bobby orders a wild turkey, neat. Great character reveal. Also, incidentally, Wild Turkey is owned by Italian conglomerate Campari. So Bobby urges Teddy not to vote for a guy named Dick Hoffman. Can't be certain that this is a subtle hat tip to Jimmy Hoffa, but I'm just putting it on the table. Bobby strategically mentions Teddy's kids and family twice. He's strong-arming him, but it seemingly comes off quite delicately. We got a gentle giant over here. But his Mamba mentality, I mean mob mentality is taking full form like vintage Kobe Bryant during a situational fourth quarter late game possession. His gesture of three bullets to the head is very reminiscent of Carmelo Anthony when he'd knocked down a three. Safe to say, message delivered both to Teddy and us, the viewer. Bobby, descendant of the Terminator, is back in business. Cut to aid watching a body by Jake infomercial. Note the contrast of going from Bobby Bacala to body by Jake. Also, Jake Steinfeld started his career as a personal trainer. Steven Spielberg was once a client. That's a little connection back to last episode when Johnny Sack is talking about how creative Ralph is. Also, it's somewhat humorous that Aid is watching workout videos while smoking. I mentioned this in the beginning, but it's worth bringing up again. She's been off kilter ever since this FBI thing. She's acting weird all around. We obviously know why. But there's a feeling here, however momentary, that she may make a big reveal. Will she tell Christopher here and now and get ahead of this thing before it's too late? She offers up scrambled eggs. She watches as he stashes a gun in the laundry closet, perhaps filing that away in her back pocket for the feds later. Nobody knows. 
She floats California. He rebukes it. You're burning the butter. Let's be honest. What's our future here, Christopher? You, you could end up in jail or something horrible could happen. Fucking negative shit. Stop with that. Somebody could have it in for you. You wouldn't know. Who? I don't know. What the fuck kind of shit is this? Who told you that? Nobody. Fucking negative shit coming out of your mouth. I had that fucking bird watching me when I got made. I'm already under a, what do you call it, possibly. So stop with that. I worry about you, that's all. I love you so much. So if you love me, stir my eggs, okay? You kind of sense a lost opportunity here. If there ever was going to be a chance, this seemed like it. But instead, the lie continues to grow. And it's probably not going to end well. Back at the club real quick. Aid welcomes Ralph, Patsy, Vito, and Eugene to the back. This is the scene where Vito breaks the chair. Was it real? Was it in script? Either way, hold on to this thought for a moment. Let's go back to Junior, putting on a cardigan, singing, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Mr. Rogers over here. This actually happens to be very timely right now, as last year's documentary of Fred Rogers has spurred the development of a feature starring Tom Hanks. Now, I was hoping for Castaway 2, but this will do for now. Wilson! I'm sorry! I'm sorry, Wilson! Wilson, I'm sorry! I'm sorry! Wilson! Junior hurriedly turns on the TV because he thinks he missed the bit about his trial. On screen, he sees a likeness of him. What fuck? What What kind of likeness is that? If they were great artists, they'd be in a museum. I'm fucking fodder for cartoonists now? The likeness, of course, looks like a wonderful mashup of... Junior and David Chase. This gets Junior to start lifting free weights while talking to Bobby. Junior's suspicious in general. He's fidgety. He's trying to talk Bobby down from Janice, and we learn that she either stole Carmela's lasagna recipe or used it instead of making her own. I'd put money on the latter. Okay, back at the club. This time it's Aiden Chris. Chris says he's loyal to T because of what he did. He obviously doesn't tell Aid, but we know it's what Tony did with respect to Barry Haydu. Now, Aid breaks the chair. Okay, this happens twice, so something's gotta be there, right? The visual suggests simultaneous fragility and strength, simultaneous balance and instability. Interesting themes for both characters, Vito and Adriana. Also, there's a monument sculpture of a broken chair that was designed by a Swiss artist and placed in Geneva across from the Palace of Nations in 1997. Now, there's no sufficient nexus to the show, obviously, but it's interesting, if nothing else. And it was a newsy item in the late 90s, early 2000s. Cut to the trial, where Junior is staring intensely at the artist. Great look, great moment. And he's accomplishing two things here. One, get my face right this time. No excuses. And two, you better not fuck it up this time around. Back to aid. There's a lot of quick burst scenes in this episode. Always conjures up the thought of us careful Sopranos watchers being pinballs in one of their high-scoring games. San Severino's waiting for her at the bottom of an escalator. Ralph went down to Philly, we learn. What did he go down there for? What was he up to? Agent Harris asks about Giovanni. Aid plays dumb. But they can sense she's lying. They just wait. As we cringe. 
The silence is a tool, a weapon. She buckles and decides to rat on Patsy, that he goes to White Plains to get suits. And so begins her journey into misdirection and misinformation. The problem is, she's in over her head. And as much as we want to help her, all we can do is watch. Back to Janice, next to a table of empty Tupperware. All the food she gave away. The taint of all other women, potential competition for her, successfully expunged. Bobby says he'd like to take her out for dinner. Date night. Will they hit up a hip eatery in the city and bump into Phil and Claire Foster from the movie Date Night? There's a visual, at least, if nothing else. She asks about Karen's ziti. There's something about Janice and this ziti. She wants him to eat it so she can be fully immersed in his life. It's the last piece of Tupperware standing between her and Bobby. The whole thing is strangely dark, sexual, sweet, cunning, and desperate all at once. Let's go back to the club for a second. This time, we're with Tony and Ralph. Tony appears to be sitting in the chair just fine. Adriana walks in, and she's quickly shooed away from her own club, from her own office. All of a sudden, the Crazy Horse is a place of business. I mentioned it earlier, but it's kind of official now. And it's kind of sprung on us. Tony and Ralph are having some kind of discussion having to do with shell companies, tax losses, and the horse. You know, it's always something with her. You should see the veterinarian bills. Fucking racket. This is a precursor statement. Hold on to it. Tony wants to get her titanium shoes. Ralph's thinking, great, more expense. It turns out there is a Jimmy Choo of horseshoes, and it's manufactured by an Australian company called Titanium Technologies. They're lighter, stronger, and faster, which sounds more like the new Kyrie's than the new Jimmy Choo's. But to quote Richie, Each his own, Tony. Each his own. Cut to Ralph with a new girlfriend. Inez calls. Something's wrong with the horse. Ralph gives Inez a phone number. Ostensibly Tony's. Lot of balls. This moment reminded me of Larry David and the hilarious foist bit in Curbed. Tony's watching Churchill. Carm's still giving him the silent treatment, which is what I'm probably going to get tonight if I don't get out of here soon. It's followed up by some more regularness of life. Amela, can you shut the door? Amela, can you please shut the door? Been there all too often. So Inez calls Tony. We hear in the background Churchill speaking. I am near the end of my service. Very Sopranos subtext. Followed by, I hope I have some services left to render. This, right as he's about to go rescue the horse. He quickly gets dressed, and there's another great moment between him and Carm. Ralphie Sifaretto's horse is sick, and they can't find him. So somebody's got to go down there and pay the vet. Down where? A racetrack. It's a racehorse? So why do you have to go? You bought a racehorse? No, I didn't buy it. It followed you home? The horse is sick. This is hilarious to us, but mortifying for her. And her brilliance conveys the space between those two so well. We get our last look at Aid, who comes home. She's completely spent. She shoots up. And we're left with this sad frame of her sitting with Cosette. We see her through a doorframe. Walls closing in. It's just a matter of time. Similar framing to the way Carmela was in the kitchen earlier in the episode. They're both boxed in. Different ways, but same ultimate outcome. The timelines are just off a little. Cut to rain. 
the quintessential palate cleanse. In an episode where we learned that letting a goat run free relieves you of your sins, so too does rain. Similarly, wash everything away and provide a fresh start, or at least a fresh wardrobe. Also, think back to Gloria and her line, it never rains. Production note, Tony left the windshield wipers on. That always made me wonder if someone was waiting in the car. Next, we get a little education in horse medicine. We learn that if you cut a horse, their racing days are over. That was the risk that Tony was in a race against time against. He pays the vet. The only thing Tony didn't do was throw the cash at him, like he did to Melfi, seasons back. And this would have been a fitting spot to harken back to that great scene. Finally, we're left with a beautiful moment and frame of Tony, Piomai, and the goat. So much symbolism. Too much symbolism. There's a powerful religiosity to it. Shit's biblical. Tony's compassion for animals. It goes all the way back to the pilot. Tony loves animals more than people. Most people, at least. And I've always thought it was rooted in loneliness. He's surrounded by two families. But there's a lingering loneliness that he's never been able to shake. At least not to this point. There's the goat. Possibly referencing death. The Grim Reaper. Or that Ralph was looming large, even though he wasn't there, but was the reason for this possibly fatal and costly situation. But the goat also highlights the notion that horses like companionship. So here, the goat is a friend, even though symbolically, it could be looked at as a foe. Tony, too, a friend in this instance, but someone who could, in an instant, be a foe or at least be associated with one. The song, which we've heard before in the season four premiere, My Rifle, My Pony, and Me, from the film Rio Bravo. I know we're not making a Western here, but aren't we? The sun is sinking in the west. Hold that thought. Then there's the cigar, which usually equates with a relaxed state of mind. Tony's able to escape, really escape, from all the shit, past, present, and future, and just be with the mammal of his choice, and it's special to watch. And it comes out in his smile, followed by a deep sigh, as gorgeous an end sequence as you'll ever see, and certainly one that will be homaged in its own right in film or TV by later generations. In season one, Junior says, we're not making a Western here. But I think the joke's on us. This thing of ours has been playing out like a Western since the opening establishing shot. That's all I got. Please share this with one other person and send me your questions or thoughts by DMing at Potabing on Instagram. Thanks for listening as always. See you next time. 